What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr. Mark Halloran, and you're listening to Deep Trouble. Hi and welcome. We are back in the studios of 94.9 Main FM. I'm Steve Proposh, editor of Trouble Magazine. And I'm Dr. Mark Allerud. And you are in deep trouble. And who have we got this week, Mark? We have Professor Jennifer Byrne, uh, who has spent her scientific career analysing childhood and adult cancers at a molecular level. She was recently recognised as one of nature's 10 people who mattered in 2017 uh, due to her exposing a series of scientific frauds perpetrated by labs in China. Sounds brilliant. Let's get into it. I suppose we could start off talking about your career and why you decided to pursue science and, and in particular cancer biology specifically. Yeah, I guess I've, I've always been a pretty curious person. So I was, I was brought up in the country actually. And when I was a child, I was very, very interested in animals and wildlife and things. And I think I wanted to be a scientist who studied wildlife. But then like a lot of kids, I think I hit my teens and realized that people were actually quite interesting as well as animals. And in particular, I met a family whose son had uh, hemophilia, and I remember being quite affected by the, I guess, the difficulties that that family faced. And around that time, I guess, I switched my focus and decided to become a medical researcher. Um, I guess I went into cancer a little bit by accident. I did my honours degree in neuroscience, and I felt that I wanted to sort of change technologies, and so I, I got a job actually in a cancer research lab. A departure from the um, the employment history of your family? Oh, very much so. So um, my father was a farmer, I guess. Uh, my mother was a pharmacist um, in the days when that was through an apprenticeship. So, you know, neither of my parents went to uni and certainly my grandparents probably, you know, might have finished primary school if that. So, yeah, it was certainly an unusual choice and, and I think my family were quite worried about whether or not I would get a job, I guess. So they, they actually weren't too thrilled about me wanting to be a scientist. It was only really when I got my PhD that I think they thought, oh, you know, yeah, maybe there's something in this. They were able to relax a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> and so you decided to transfer over to cancer research and that is, it sounds like you started off working as a research officer. Yeah, I started working as a research assistant and, and then fairly quickly I decided to do my PhD. So I was actually working in a lab, a childhood cancer lab. And I think, you know, when I started working there, I didn't even realize that, that children got cancer. And when I realized that, you know, children got cancer, I thought, God, that just seems completely unfair to me that, you know, this disease that you sort of equate with, with aging actually happens to really, really young people. And so I, I did my PhD in childhood cancer and then I kind of switched when I went overseas and studied adult cancer. So I've, I've done a bit of both. It sounds like there was sort of like, I mean, there was the initial interest in the science, but then there was an emotional reason for continuing on. Yes, to some degree. And my mother actually had cancer when I was fairly young. So I think I knew... Um, 
you know, I knew something about the impact of cancer on a family. But I would still say that, you know, when I started cancer research, the field was still very open and there was, I mean, it's still true that there's an enormous amount that we don't know. But, you know, when I look back on those days, uh, you know, the human genome hadn't been sequenced. In fact, it was still a long way from being sequenced. And we were really dealing with the genome, in, you know, as a black box. So there was enormous um, scope for discovery, which I think was has always been something that's attracted me to areas of research. Because your PhD topic was on the loss of chromosome 11p15? Yeah, yeah, kind of. I was really mapping, um, I was mapping regions of genomic or chromosomal loss in a kind of class of tumour that, that children get. And, you know, as I said, we really didn't, have much idea what was going on. And so through some fairly simple approaches, I was, I guess what my PhD did um, was partly show that what we thought was actually a bit more complicated. And I also did some work in terms of cloning DNA sequences and a lot of sequencing of DNA. And then that was something that I continued through my postdoc. So I guess I, um, I became quite technically proficient during my PhD and that was something that I was able to then apply when I was a postdoctoral researcher. It seems as though because of the connection to, you know, having that realisation of what cancer does, that was something that you took into um, your work in terms of integrity of scientific research. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think another thing that you realise when you're doing research at the bench or, in fact, anywhere is that there are many, many ways of doing bad research, but there's only really one way of doing good research. And so, you know, it's a little bit like Tolstoy's quote, you know, happy families are all alike, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And it's very similar, you know, good research has a lot of features, but there are just almost infinite ways to do bad research and so it's really quite challenging to stay on that path and keep trying to do things the best that you can. I imagine that the people that you uh, that your supervisors were inspiring to. Oh well I, I don't know but I think all you try to do is um, you try and teach whatever you have learned the hard way to people so that hopefully they will at least not make those same mistakes. Right what would you say are the facets of good research? Well, I think the important thing is to realize that, you know, really it's it's about doing experiments carefully in a controlled way. So the, the importance of, you know, controlled experiments can't be overstated. I think, you know, good experiments can sometimes take time. Probably the really important thing about research is it's really not about you. You know, it's it's about the result and I often, you know, have students or people talk to me about, you know, experiments and they're worried about what the result will be and will it be the right result or the wrong result and I'm just like, it'll be the result. You know, that's, that's all that matters. Yeah, well, I suppose I'd like to talk to you about that uh, in terms of the students that you supervise later on. In terms of your supervision, your experience as a student yourself, how did you find the field? Were just drawn to the work itself? Well, I think really I found my PhD, you know, quite difficult. I think when I went through my PhD, there was a lot less focus upon supervision. You know, most PhD students just kind of, you know, got themselves through their PhDs. I think that was pretty broadly true for most people. Whereas these days, 
supervision is really given a lot of attention, both by universities and departments. So there's much more focus on students actually having a positive experience. But certainly when I went through, that wasn't the case. I mean, there's always pluses and minuses to that. I think it's certainly you develop a lot of self-reliance and um, you also, you know, you learn often how to do things from first principles because there isn't really anyone to show you. So I certainly, you know, learn a great deal. And, and I think that sort of started to pay off when I went overseas and worked as a postdoc. I remember somebody in my lab in France kind of saying, Oh, you know, well, Jenny's experiments seem to work. <laughs> and I thought, well, yeah, they do. That's been a long road to get there. I guess there is only one way of developing self-efficacy and that's through doing things. Yeah, that's right. You were nominated by Nature as one of the top 10 people who mattered in 2017, which sounds impressive. Um, and that was in relation to your discovery of fraudulent research, which was produced by Chinese researchers, in relation to a gene uh, that you've had something to do with TPD52L2. C- could you explain a little bit about what's happened there? Yeah, sure. So that particular gene was one gene that I first identified when I was a postdoc in France, actually. And at that stage, it was the third gene in a family that I identified. And I suppose, um, you know, as a scientist, we probably identify more things than we can follow up. So even though I cloned this gene and reported it, we then didn't really study it in much detail. But I still kind of kept my eye on it from a distance. And I saw that, you know, yeah, not many people were really studying this gene, um, you know, over really 20 years. So it was when all of a sudden there were five publications in less than one year on this gene that I thought this was a bit unusual. And in particular, the publications were, were so similar that initially I actually didn't realise that there were five. I thought there was maybe two or three because I thought that, you know, they were all the same publication. And then finally, when I realized there were five, I thought, you know, I should really sit down and look at these papers and try and work out what's going on. And and things kind of developed from there. So uh, since then, these papers have been retracted? Yes, four of the five of those papers have been retracted. What was wrong with the papers? Well, kind of various things, but um, what we noticed was that the, the papers were very similar to each other in terms of their topics, in terms of the way that the experiments had been described and put together. But in particular, we realised that some of the results were very unlikely or impossible because of clues in the actual DNA sequences that were described in those papers. So I'm someone that's been studying DNA for a long time, and just by eye, you know, I could see that when I looked at some of these sequences and compared them, I could see that the publications were using the same sequences, but they were using some of them really wrongly. Um, And, of course, I did, you know, bioinformatic analysis to, you know, further those kinds of observations. And this, to me, indicated that some of these results were just impossible. So if they were impossible, maybe, you know, I, I just didn't really understand how to explain that. Well, I suppose the other thing to explain is that I think that it was noted that these results were published in fairly low-impact factor journals, and that they still have to go through an international peer review process. So the things that you discovered were missed in, in the peer review process. 
Yes, that's right. Yes, they they weren't in particularly high impact journals, and in fact, some of these journals I'd not read before reading these papers. But you know, still, as you say, these are international journals, and they should be um, conducting peer review. So, I guess certainly from my experience as a I'm a journal editor, I know that it can be very difficult to get appropriate um, expertise to review publications. So that is a problem. And sometimes peer reviewers don't provide very detailed commentaries. So, you know, there are challenges there. But it did seem as if some of these mistakes that I could pick up had not been picked up during peer review. And so since then, I read that 48 papers have actually been discovered with a highly similar structure. Yes, that's right. So I joined forces with a scientist in France, and so Dr. Cyril Labbe, and he works in... Um, in the Alps region of France, actually, and his expertise is text analysis. So when I realised that this was probably an issue that extended beyond the five papers, I contacted Cyril and he helped me to analyse a broader cohort of papers that we kind of identified together and we published that cohort at the beginning of 2017. And after that, I started writing to the journals of all of the papers that were published in that cohort plus a couple of others just uh, outlining the concerns that we had published anonymously in most cases in the paper so we hadn't we'd identified five the five papers that we'd worked on for a long time but a lot of the other papers in the journal we didn't identify out of respect to the authors and you know from the point of view of the fact that well we actually didn't really know what was going on with these papers we actually had to start investigating them so i've I've probably written to, um, I think, about 25 journals, about roughly 60 papers to date. I'm wondering whether this is uh, from Chinese laboratories, whether this is a localised phenomenon, which which may be happening in a particular part of China, or whether this is something that um, may be occurring more broadly. I think in our publication we we tried to think about what might be happening in China that might be producing this this phenomenon. And I think one thing I should say is that China is obviously a, a very large country with many scientists and doctors, and it's very likely that the vast majority of those people are performing research exactly as they should be. But I think partly because China is a big country, small signals are probably amplified through that large population. So that's probably one thing. What, what do you mean by that, small signals? Well, it's estimated from a lot of studies that say, you know, a fairly low proportion of scientists actually engage in, in fraud. You know, usually it's somewhere between 1% and 4% in different studies. So it's a pretty low number. So if you have a small country and you're talking about 1% of scientists in a small country, maybe you're not even really going to see that. But if you're talking about 1% of scientists in the most populous country on earth, that's going to be more easily detected. But in addition, I guess there's some other specific things. In China, there are um, some researchers are working under what are called publication quotas. So they're expected to produce a certain number of publications every year, rain, hail or shine, regardless of what happens, you need to produce this number of publications. And I think there's evidence from other countries that publication quotas in particular can sometimes, you know, push researchers to, I guess, stray from the path of good practice in order to meet those very heavily enforced requirements. 
I guess it's understandable in some respects. I mean, there is a general culture of publish or perish as well, though, isn't there? There is. I mean, that's certainly a term that's used very broadly around the world. And I think you'd probably be hard pressed to find a a country where researchers don't know that term and don't feel some degree of pressure to to publish. Yes. I mean, the, these researchers, their excuse was that they engaged biotechnology companies to do the research for them. And so they didn't really even understand the results that they were given. And then other labs sort of plagiarise those results. That's my understanding of it. Yeah, I think we don't really know. We don't know what's going on. Um, One publication was retracted because the authors did indicate that they had received results from a biotechnology company. So that was, you know, one study where that was stated in the retraction notice. You know, other people have found that in China and and in other countries that there are systems whereby uh, results can be sold and publications can be sold. So you can pay a certain amount of money to have your name added to an existing publication. I guess what we wonder is whether there is also the scope for researchers to just sort of buy results ready-made and then write up those results but really there's not much known about this practice and obviously it's pretty hard to discover much about this practice because it's illegal, so it's not something that's easily studied. You're listening to Deep Trouble. Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Professor Jennifer Byrne. I've also had a conversation with Tim Errington, who's a manager of, I think, meta-analytics at... Um, the Center for Open Science uh, in the US, which are doing reproducibility studies. They started off in psychology and then moved over to cancer biology. And they didn't take the low-impact factor journals. They took the top-tier journals, so Science, um, Nature and Cell, and found that they could only reproduce two out of five uh, of the key results from these papers. Is that concerning? Yes and no. Um, I think that's – I'm certainly very familiar with the reproducibility project. I've been following that for some time. And I think certainly by choosing studies in these high-impact journals, I think that that's a very appropriate approach because these studies are likely to have a bigger impact in terms of being read by more people, getting more attention. But some of those studies are also going to sort of be um, at the higher end of a degree of difficulty if you like. So you can sort of rate scientific experiments a little bit like gymnastics or something like that. You know, there are techniques that are pretty easy that almost anybody can do, but there are techniques that are really, really tricky. And sometimes these high-impact publications are, they are published in these very high-impact journals because some of the experiments that are described are just really hard to do. And sometimes they're also going to be hard to replicate by somebody else. We're not talking about, you know, intentional problems. We're talking about, you know, just the degree of difficulty of the work that's being done, the complexity of the systems. There's a couple of points in there, um, and I suppose the one is that the culture in which the studies that you discovered occurred because reproducibility doesn't occur, so it's not a part of normal science anymore, essentially. And there's not many, there's not much call for uh, reproduction because of the funding structure. No, that's right. Well, there's, there's not much incentive for reproduction because journals, generally speaking, want new results because 
They want new things that will go on to be cited by other people, which then drives their particular business model that will improve their impact factor, etc. So, um, yeah, reproducible studies about reproducibility are definitely not on any, you know, particularly high impact journals to do list, although there are some um, attempts to reverse that. Is that a problem because, you know, Thomas Kuhn called it a part of normal science? So we, we can't actually validate the studies that are done because no one's actually checking whether they were done properly in the first place. I think there's some misunderstanding about this in the community as well because, you know, often I speak with lay people and they seem quite worried about the degree of interaction between scientists and they are worried about the fact that we might be unwittingly duplicating each other's work. But we actually say, no, actually, that's a really good thing, you know, because if something's real, it should be reproducible and it should be reported by somebody else. But unfortunately, in science, there is this emphasis upon being first, you know. The second part of that was in relation to when studies do become incredibly technical because the the work that you do and that uh, these type of scientists, biologists do is incredibly technical. But what happens when the conditions are so specific and so difficult to reproduce? So we're talking about even slight pH changes, slight alterations in an assay or or the the person who conducts the experiment. It's sort of the golden hands argument, which is what Tim calls it. What happens when it, if it's so specific, it no longer relates to reality. So it has no validity in reality when you're talking about a disease like cancer or Alzheimer's. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a really good point. And actually, my postdoctoral advisor in France had this saying, um, he used to say to me, we don't want a rare gene, meaning we don't want some kind of obscure phenomenon, because if it's obscure or hard to measure or infrequent, it's probably not important. So his kind of approach was it should be reproducible. It should be able to be reproduced without too much trouble or else A, it might not be real or it might not be important, you know. Sure. I think the takeaway message is that reproduction should be done more often. Absolutely, yes. Yes, I think that's true. And I think most researchers will say that. But unfortunately, most people would also say, I'm very happy for other people to reproduce my findings. And people are generally a little bit less keen to run around and reproduce other people's findings, unless there's a specific incentive in the system for that. That's a perfect segue to our next question, um, which is the funding incentive structure. Uh, I don't know about what ch- what the, the incentive structure is in China, but the one in Australia... And, um, and the decreasing success rate for NHMRC and ARC grants. The last one I read was 14.9% for NHMRC uh, in terms of the success rate, down from 30% a decade ago. Um, and I'm just wondering what sort of culture that this pressure may perpetuate. I think the re- reduced funding has a number of consequences, and one of those is really to be funded, you have to be working on, I suppose, a sure thing in some way. There are certain kinds of research that could be funded and this, I guess, what's a bit concerning is an increasing range of research that just looks like it's not going to be funded. I think the kinds of research that fall into that category are either very high risk novel research, research without any obvious application, 
definitely confirmatory studies are, I think, pretty low on that list. From my experience, a lot of it is geared towards, you know, whether it's government funding or whether it's uh, community groups that raise money um, and start uh, NGOs that raise money for funding for science. The sell to these funding bodies is that we're, we're potentially working on something that's translatable into a therapeutic, even if it really seems as though it's years away from that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's all. I think almost everywhere there is an expectation that there is going to be some kind of application to the research in the foreseeable future. So, you know, possibly less than five years. And that kind of expectation is obviously difficult to be realized in the case of discovery based research or, you know, which can be termed, you know, fishing expeditions where people just want to fossick around and find things. I suppose also that uh, some diseases may be really, it would seem looking at them realistically many, many years away from any kind of therapeutic change and a lot of the work would need to be done at, at a really base biological level, um, exploratory level. Yeah, I guess, you know, a lot of the things that we're now starting to translate, we have to realise have had their beginnings back in the 50s and 60s. So, you know, probably the prime example that lots of people are aware of is, you know, we wouldn't have a lot of the molecular kind of diagnostics that we're starting to use now if Watson and Crick hadn't solved the structure of DNA. And then we needed researchers to work out, well, you know, what is the code in DNA and how is that translated? And how do we derive systems so that we can apply these kind, this kind of basic knowledge? So, you know, the horizon for translation, I think, is getting shorter, but it's still probably in 20, 30 years we're going to be reaping the benefits of a lot of the basic science that was done today. And if we stop doing that really fundamental research, we're not going to have those kinds of insights that people will be taking for granted in, in, a, in a generation's time. Is that fundamental research at risk to some extent? I think it is. It's at risk for a number of reasons. I I think another big problem with the funding situation is that I see is that a lot of students are just really leaving research very early. They're making that decision to leave research and go somewhere else almost before they've started their career. And they make that decision because they just can't see a future for themselves. And that's quite scary for a lot of us that are training students, you know, to see that almost immediate exit, like, I'm not going to try this because what's the point? Understandable as well. I mean, my experience was highly unstable, short-term contracts, tremendous amounts of pressure to produce positive results and publish. That is a massive ask of people, isn't it? It is, it is. I don't blame people at all, you know, but I, I wish that there was something more to, to offer people. I mean, to really continue in research, it's probably never been a decision that you make entirely with your head. You know, you do it because you love research and because you can't imagine doing anything else. But but at some point, the career has to deliver for you. You know, it still has to be possible. Well, yeah, I mean, it's probably not worth risking um, starving. Well, there's not many independently wealthy, you know, young PhD students. No one will tell you up front, I don't think, uh, starting an undergraduate degree in science 
and then leading through to an honours or a master's and then onto a PhD. If you find yourself in a PhD and, and for whatever reason, the project that you're in doesn't yield positive results, that's a tremendous amount of pressure because you've committed a, a, a significant amount of your life to this. No one else is checking your work in a lot of the cases that I've seen. No, no one else even internally in the lab is going back to see whether the results you've got are right or not. Is that concerning? Look, it can be. I think not having positive results is not a reason why somebody can't obtain a PhD because a PhD is an original contribution to knowledge, however that is made. But certainly, you know, a lack of of what we might describe as positive results may impact your ability to publish or where you publish, and that will affect your career going forward. So um, it's certainly true that, you know, really in science there is – there is tremendous scope for people to deviate from good practices because, as you said, often, you know, there's there's not often a lot of supervision. And, in fact, it's almost impossible to supervise somebody every minute of the day that they are working. So we do rely a great deal on trust both within teams and also between teams. You know, when I'm reading somebody's publication – uh, on the internet and I've never met this group and they work on the other side of the world, I need to trust that they actually did what they said that they did. Yeah, so there has to be a, a trust across groups of integrity. Yes. Uh, and I mean, I suppose the other thing that I kind of emphasise is that I'm probably not, when I'm bringing up this sort of discussion, I'm not talking about outright fraud. I'm talking about just the human error of confirmation bias when people are con- conducting experiments where there's cell counts and, and and also the pressure that pressure to get the right result and find a positive result, how much that plays into pe- into what people do psychologically. I think that's true too. Yeah, that and that's why I really try and emphasise and don't try and talk about what the result is supposed to be or what it should look like. We just say you know analyse the data and, and the data will tell you what the result is but it's a lesson that can it can take a while to learn that and I think often students are taught to package their results you know into neat sort of packages and yet really you discover more from your data when you actually explore the data look at the raw data and try and really think what have I actually got here and what has happened um, but there is a lot of pressure on people to just sort of wrap things up and describe it quickly and move on to the next thing. To get their name onto a paper or something like that? Well, just to be productive, to be seen. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of, there's probably a lot of bad practices that people learn, you know, through their undergraduate degrees that they don't even realise are not the right thing to do. I think we do have to overhaul probably how we how we teach science and how we teach in particular data analysis. You're listening to Deep Trouble, Dr. Mark Halloran, in conversation with Professor Jennifer Byrne. What do you think the problems are that we have at the moment with the way that we teach methodological and statistical design? Certainly when I did statistics and learned statistics, it's often quite abstract and it's often applied to systems that are not relevant to what you're doing. And I found when I started to try and learn statistics for laboratory scientists, I found it very hard to find statisticians that even really understood what we were doing in the lab. So I think there's probably a lack of statisticians that actually understand laboratory research. 
most statisticians understand population health research, public health research, but laboratory research is quite difficult. So, um, you know, if you don't know yourself and you can't find good advice, it's going to be pretty easy to make mistakes. Yeah, well, I think that's, I mean, that was my experience because my background was originally psychology for an undergraduate degree. And, and so there's a massive emphasis on statistics there and statistical analysis and design. And then I found going into biochemistry and biology that it was really just the programs were really, I mean, the work is really hard to begin with. So just getting through the work uh, and doing the experiments is incredibly difficult. And then the statistical analysis just seemed like something was tacked on. And so you have these really simple programs where you just put it in, do an ANOVA and get a p-value. Yes, I think that's very true. Without really thinking, is that the right test? Yeah, well, as far as those sort of tests, I mean, you sometimes you're looking at the data. You might need to look at skews in the data and transformations of the data uh, to, to make sure that the, it's robust and according to the assumptions. I didn't know anyone, I didn't meet any researcher, even some of the top-tier geneticists who really understood anything about statistics. It's probably getting a bit better in the sense that now, um, you know, there's the sort of rise of big data and so we have... Um, that as an actual field where people are being trained in terms of how to actually analyze big data sets. So I, I think there's a broader awareness of statistics today than there probably was 10 or 20 years ago. But still, there's extra, I think there's an extraordinary high prevalence of people, you know, not really understanding how to analyze their data and often also, you know, they're not being enough help available Like you said, uh, it's interesting that there haven't been many statisticians that really understand neuroscientific or biological research. Well, that's right, yes. So, I mean, the, the people that are very good are either people that have come from that background and been retrained or people that have just been working in the field for a long time and, and slowly have learnt the needs of laboratory researchers as well as with people from other fields. Another issue is, and it comes back to somewhat to reproducibility, but the uh, lack of opportunity within the industry to publish null results. Yes, that's right. I think there's now a journal of negative results. Oh, that's good. <laughs> it, it is. Uh, it's very important. Like within the clinical trials space, I think you're probably aware that clinical trials are now ex have to be registered, and so they're registered prior to being conducted, and that at least allows people to track which trials are published and which are not. So certainly clinical trials that you know, that have results in, in expectation with perhaps the team's expectation at the beginning or possibly the funding body, those kinds of trials are more likely to be published, whereas trials that fail to recruit adequate numbers of patients or, or have unsatisfactory outcomes are less likely to be published. But at least with a registration system, you know that the trial happened and that's important, and you can contact the person who was leading the trial possibly to find out what happened if it wasn't published? I think the, the issue in terms of m moving into the clinical trials, for the, that translatable research, I've talked about this with other people, but the actual translation rates are really, really poor, aren't they, in terms of the number of compounds that are suggested that, that may have been tested in an animal model, and then when you try to move it into a clinical trial with a human the failure rate is massively high, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, there are many, many reasons for that. 
But, you know, one of the reasons is, of course, clinical trials have to improve the standard of care. And so in some areas of medicine where the standards are already quite high, you can imagine it can be difficult to improve on something that's already working pretty well. Right. You mean where there are other, where it's, it's sort of a case of polypharmacy, where there's other medications also being used to treat the patient? Well, particularly in some areas of cancer where we're already treating patients, you know, we've got multiple forms of therapy that form the standard of care. If you want to improve on that, it gets more difficult. And particularly as the, as the results get better, it gets, it gets harder. That's in a sense a, a kind of a good problem to have. But of course, there's still areas of medicine where outcomes are very poor. And there it's easier in theory to design a trial that might result in improved outcomes, but there can still be barriers to that as well. So yeah, it's a complicated field. What would you say were the main barriers in terms of, I mean, I worked in motor neurone disease, so the outcomes there for patients are really poor and, and really there's been nothing in terms of translation, in terms of the therapeutic. There's one FDA-approved drug, which I, and I think its results are really spurious because the statistics, even in the clinical trial, were really poor. Well, I think in cancer it tends to be the case that the rarer forms of cancer are, have poorer outcomes, and that's partly because when something is rare, it's harder to study, so it's harder to acquire sufficient patients for informative clinical trials. Sometimes this can be related to where the cancer actually develops in the body. So, for example, you know, tumours that, that occur in the bone, it can be difficult to get good drug delivery to the bone. You know, a lot of therapies for bone cancer are challenging. So there can be all kinds of reasons why the outcomes for certain kinds of cancers lag behind others. The funding is an issue as well. I mean, because if you do have success with cancer, so breast cancer research, uh, I don't know that much about it, but it it's, it has a really it's been really successful in terms of the awareness and then the amount of funding it attracts and therefore the research and therefore the trend the, the number of therapies that have been uh, translated into humans that's true i think certainly breast cancer's benefited from its you know its prevalence and there was a big grassroots movement pushing for more breast cancer research for example in the 90s which has generated a lot more support for breast cancer. But breast cancer has been a successful model in other ways as well. And I think perhaps what people don't always realise is a lot of the money that was invested in breast cancer early on really generated a lot of technological development that has then gone on to benefit other cancers. But I think what we're facing now is we're recognising that really patients who have certain kinds of cancers some cancers are really doing very well, and yet we still have some forms of cancer where survival is very, very poor. What have been the things recently, maybe the last 10 years, technologies that have been developed that have excited you? Well, I think that massively parallel sequencing is very exciting. So that is the capacity to sequence DNA um, really at a large scale, and that's something that we're using in our research to discover causes of cancer predisposition in children. I think that's really been a, a revolutionary technique. There are some other forms of treatment that I think are going to have a big impact in the future, such as immunotherapy for cancer, cell-based therapies for cancer. Some of these things at the moment are technologically difficult and expensive, but 
they're having amazing results for particular patients, which is which is pretty exciting. Because they're having real world results. Yeah, without a doubt. Yes. What do you envision will happen to the field in the next ten years? Yeah, I think that's a it's an excellent question, and I think what's important probably in research is that we have some balance. And we recognise that not all advances come through technology. I think we we need the kind of high-end science that I suppose I've spent, you know, my career chasing in a sense. But we also need to do the basics better. And I, I read quite an influential article in Nature, might have been a couple of months ago now, which really talked about the fact that, you know, saving lives in sort of third world and developing countries is not so much about the kinds of science that we're working on now, but just about delivering healthcare effectively to people. So I think we have to really continue to think about problems from a very broad perspective because it's quite easy to invest in one side of science and forget about the fact that you actually need many aspects of research to really make a difference to humanity. If you could change the system, what would you fund? To be honest, one of the things that really worries me is climate change. I think climate change is going to have tremendous impacts on human health. So I think that's something that we have to start thinking about now. And I think governments and and need to think very seriously about climate mitigation strategies or adaptation strategies because that's going to really add a whole layer of complexity to human health and well-being. So that's something that worries me a great deal as an individual. And within the, I guess, within the field of cancer, I think we have to think as much about prevention as about treatment. A lot of big inroads in disease have been made through preventing disease, and it's probably something that we're not spending enough money on or giving enough attention to. So I think there are many causes of cancer There are many environmental causes of cancer, but what seems to be the challenge, and this is not just a cancer, but in many fields of human endeavour, is changing behaviour. We could probably prevent a lot of disease if we could work out how to effectively change human behaviour. That seems to be a very big challenge. I mean, do you think the human behaviour, these are lifestyle factors in terms of cancer? Yeah, lifestyle factors just as... And, I mean, this impacts on many aspects of life, you know, global warming as well. I suppose the future is created by the decisions that we make for ourselves today. But what seems to be difficult is working out how people make decisions and how you can, how people's decision making can be changed for their well-being. I mean, this is not something I know a lot about, but I've been reading a book about decision making and it does strike me as if this is a, a big issue, I guess, that, you know, we can identify ways in which we can improve health but we can't really identify ways to make people take those things on board and carry them forward in the long term. How do you think people make decisions? I'm not a psychologist. I just understand. I've been reading Daniel. I've been reading Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. So we have two components to our thinking: System One and System Two, and we make decisions using both of those systems under different circumstances. I uh, conduct some of these interviews and I've I've talked to Tim a few times and and I've talked about some of the issues that uh, I think may be prevalent in science and may be an issue. 
but it's because I think science is really important because I think it's our only way of grasping reality. And I just wonder, apparently people tell me we're living in a post-truth world. Do you think there is like an anti-science feeling from the community? I think in some areas, yes, there is. Um, I'm actually involved in a in a group at the University of Sydney called the Post-Truth Initiative that's actually examining the, the post-truth phenomenon from a variety of perspectives. So it's certainly true that I think with the availability of information on the internet and the fact that a lot of that information isn't curated, you know, people can live in these information bubbles and essentially receive the information that reinforces their pre-existing views. So, yes, I think the post-truth phenomenon is, is very real and something that's probably affecting politics and it is affecting how people view science. Not everybody, I wouldn't say. I think there's still a, in Australia, there's still a, a big part of the community that is very interested in science and believes in science. But there is also a rising tendency to, for people to believe what suits them. I mean, it, it makes it dangerous and it makes you feel vulnerable, essentially, because when funding cuts need to be made, if there's some argument made by a politician that has popular support, then potentially scientists can suffer for it. Well, I think there was an example of that recently. I saw on, on the internet a professor working on coral bleaching in North Queensland had a call that his funding be cut because his work was discouraging people from visiting the Great Barrier Reef and was reducing tourism income. So for that, it was argued that he should be punished by having his funding cut. You know, that's fairly scary. Well, uh, I mean, it, it is. I mean, you're you're isolated away from that uh, with cancer because people are scared of cancer because they're scared of death and so they tend to revere things but things like climate change which has multiple vested interest groups and, and large multinationals which aren't just lobbying governments but are essentially ensconced within governments uh, you're very vulnerable I think. I think so but even in cancer I mean there's certainly you know there's viewpoints available on the internet that cancer has been cured, that it's a conspiracy, that you just need to eat the right thing and you can be cured. You know, all of these kinds of things, these ideas can be taken seriously by certain people. When you read things like that and you read the way that different people think, is it hard for you to relate to how people think? Not really, because I understand that often people are very frightened. So when people are diagnosed of cancer, they're afraid, and they are afraid. They're afraid that the treatment may be worse than the disease. You understand that cancer patients can be in a situation where they're vulnerable to this kind of misinformation. Well, it's quite an, I guess, a sort of a virulent little industry, the industry that preys upon uh, yes, vulnerable right. people. Yes. Uh, thank you for speaking with me. No problem at all. Thank you very much. Well, that was very interesting. Mark, you wanted to go over some of the terms used in that interview. Uh, yeah, well, I think one of the main issues in terms that we talk about is the idea of reproducibility and how Thomas Kuhn had stated this was part of normal science, uh, but that 
the issue has arisen uh, recently that uh, reproducibility doesn't happen in science as often as it should. And we do an interview with a metadata manager of the Centre for Open Science in the US, Dr Tim Errington, about this, because their centre is actually dedicated to reproducing science, both psychological studies and biology. Uh, some of the terms that our listeners may not be familiar with are impact factor. So journals, international journals, are uh, listed in relation to their impact factor from highest to lowest. And so scientists tend to go for journals with the highest impact factor. So the journals with the highest impact factor are journals like Nature, Science and Cell. Uh, this does create issues within science as well in relation to reproducibility because it discourages people from reproducing other people's research because the funding model is, is focused on people producing novel research, finding new things. Right, right. Uh, another term is validity. So this is not used in the sense, uh, in a common language sense. Validity in science is... There are all manner of different types of validity criteria and construct and face validity, but validity is around whether the experiment uh, really is a good representation of what occurs in the real world. So sometimes experiments can be so artificial that they bear no relationship to what occurs in the real environment, and therefore, whilst they may be very interesting and very technically sophisticated, they can be essentially useless. Is there not always control subjects for most experiments, though? Well, the idea of having a control is, is separate to its uh, validity. So if the actual experimental design is too artificial and we find that it doesn't actually relate to... Let's say, for instance, it's the development of a therapeutic uh, cancer drug or something like that. If the drug is developed in a system that we find out is too artificial and doesn't relate to what occurs in humans, so the development of the disease in the humans, the model is essentially not useful because it doesn't inform what occurs in real life. Some of the other acronyms that I used, perhaps insensitively and unthinkingly... <laughs> Not at all, mate. <laughs> Would have been NHMRC, which is the National Health Medical Research Council, right? Uh, and the ARC, which is the Australian Research Council. And these councils provide the majority of government grants to scientific research. Another term that we use in terms of statistical analysis was ANOVA. Now, this is an analysis of variance. Um, the simple explanation of this statistical procedure is that it compares the means across different groups, so an experimental group and a control group, and often more than one experimental group and more than one control, uh, and it tries to see if the means, the averages, differ significantly. And if the mean differs significantly on the experimental group, then that means that you can reject the null hypothesis. And the null hypothesis is simply that there is no difference between the groups. Right, okay. Um, a p-value is just a criterion in which you assess whether the finding that you have is statistically significant. And if it is statistically significant, usually this is under 0 0.05, uh, then you reject the null hypothesis. Okay, 
the final one would be null results, which is negative results. So these are results that essentially find no difference. So there are no statistically significant differences between your experimental groups and your control. So that way no, no real conclusion can be drawn from the result. It's, it's complicated. It might be informative. It may mean that there is actually no difference. Uh, right, between the be groups, which can itself. be informative. Yeah, yeah. That means that either your therapeutic is actually not effective or there is no difference between, say, a genetic mutation and a control on a particular parameter, um, and that can be informative. Or it could be that your experimental design is not powerful enough to actually detect that. And so you've then got to look back at the experimental design and try to decide whether you've actually met... Uh, the criteria to have what they call uh, an appropriate level of power, which is your ability to detect an effect if the effect is present. At all, right. At all. Goodness me. Well, look, so, this is, uh, yeah, brilliant. This has been a, a real education. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Mark, and thank you, Professor Jennifer Byrne, for being with us uh, now, next week's show, Mark, let's, uh, let's get on to that. Who have we got uh, coming up next week? Uh, next week, we have an interview with Uncle Rick Nelson, who is a, an elder of the Jajawarung people. Fantastic. And that was recorded at Malmesbury Town Hall? Yes. Great. So, look, uh, looking forward to that one, too. This is Deep Trouble, the 60-minute grab. Thanks for being with us. Deep Trouble is produced by Steve Charman in the studios of Main FM, Castle, Maine. <laughs>